Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Uh, we have with us today Alan Moore, fantastic guest, the fantastic human being. Proper so introduction, please, oh, Josie. Uh, sorry, the... I'm so sorry. Please, 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 come on. We have with us the artist, writer, poet, and broadcaster Alan Moore. There we are. My pleasure. If he'd not been a broadcaster, it would have been a disaster. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll uh, do you know, we'll start off on Jerusalem, which I know you haven't read yet, Josie. No, uh, but I just, but you, have, I, you have only just got it. To I also like calling really you a poet more in the sense of like, life is poetry. Yes. Yeah, that's how I took it. And there you is know. poetry as well. I mean, you've, you've done, uh, well, in the new book, in Jerusalem, there is a, a, a chapter which is, is uh, in, in poetic form. There is a chapter which is Joycean. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a chapter that's in verse, although I'm not sure whether I'd want to claim that it was great poetry. It 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 does does rhyme, however. So sort of poetry is one of them things that I've been actually thinking that I might want to spend some more time with, because I don't think I've ever really got to grips with it yeah. as well as I have with other stuff because it. It slides about all over the place, doesn't it? It's nothing that's kind of concrete, unless it's concrete poetry, of course. But uh, but other than that, you know, it's 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 difficult for me to judge how well I'm writing poetry. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, I well, should. You did you have one published? You know, a, a single poem which has been published a book, don't you? Mirror of Love. It's... Mirror of Love. Yeah. 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 So why did you decide that was because uh, I th- I think poetry what I find I, I, I read a I've talked about it on on this before but a book called The Monkey's Mask by Dorothy Porter which was is a uh, um, detective thriller uh, lesbian detective thriller written in verse yeah. and it works tremendously effectively because it's, it's very thrilling because all spare words that might be required for prose sentences can be removed and therefore you whoa this is you know it's it's an incredibly fast ride of of a of a detective thriller as well absolutely i mean like one of the things that you find out when i do do bits of poetry is just how much information you can get in there there was um me and kevin o'neill are doing this series at the moment that's called cinema purgatorio that's like it's it's not well kevin put it best actually he was saying this is not actually about horror films this is about the horror of film and it's like uh i mean some of the the, the things in that hang on what, what what were we talking about what was the the feed what were you well it was about the idea that I've poetry po- and... poetry it yes, condenses uh, action or can we did action. we did one of the episodes um was called my fair dahlia and it's Black Dahlia, the musical. <laughs> and because I thought, what would be the most wrong way of doing this? Yeah. But then, once we decided on that, we thought, right, and let's be completely fair to Elizabeth Short. Yeah. Because um, she was a, a woman who suffered a horrific death, but who was actually probably injured more by the stories told about her in the press, whereas she was just somebody who was clearly in a really wrong place at a really wrong time. But when we were actually uh, putting that together, I'd got two or three books on the Black Dahlia case, 
and we've got six pages to do this in but by doing it all in song I, I found out that we could get everything in there dates names all of this kind of technical detail uh insights into the motives because it was in verse because it was in song in fact it's almost people enjoy a song that has kind of uh, expositional flourishes in it more than they ever would if it was in prose. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like if you, th I think when I was a kid, there's that Monty Python song about the Civil War, and it was so exciting that it had all these details of what happened in the English Civil War in it. You know, and actually, if you were to read that as a paragraph, you'd be like, "Uh huh, you've just told me what happened in the English Civil War." Great. See, Monty Python, I found I did a thing with Eric Idle recently. I was telling you about, and I was saying to him, "I helped get me an English A level because yeah, we too. had to do King Lear, and it has a bit on the Monty Python album, I think, of the uh, uh, Monty Python the Holy Grail, which has I think it's the Grenadier Guards." playing the part of King Lear or something like that. But it's verbatim, so tis this the king? I, every inch a king, when I who stare, see how my subjects great. I pardon that man's life, die for adultery, not die for adultery, no. Let copulation thrive, if Gloucester's bastard... Now, I never would know that from reading it, but by hearing various pythons do that, so that's... Uh... Well, well I, I kind of think that... I mean, everything has its origin, and poetry and rhyme, I think that this is... Something like the the Aboriginal conception. I think it is literally the song line. I think that before you've got maps, um, before you've got the concept of maps, then how are you going to get from one place to another? The best way would be, say, to remember uh, a string of landmarks mm. um, that can get you, or right, when you see the blasted oak, then look towards these two hills in the distance, go between them. You could probably get right the way from, you know, Bath to Lincolnshire or something like that, yeah. following those instructions. But you'd never remember them unless they were in a mnemonic form. So making things rhyme, I think that probably somewhere back in the Paleolithic period, we actually realised that, oh yeah, rhymes are memorable. If we put all of the directions into a rhyming form, into a song, then all people have got to do is to sing the song to themselves yeah. and they'll remember how to get where they wanted to go. It's, uh, I think that there's probably practical reasons that are behind almost all art. You know, originally it was there for a, a very definite purpose. Also, yeah. children do get very excited when they first start rhyming things. When they, mm -hmm. If they make an accidental run, they go, oh, that rhymed, that rhymed, did you see how that rhymed? And you can see why something like Doctor's Use, which I, I love uh, Doctor's Use, and I'm really disappointed that, that oh, the places you'll go is so you being used in an advert, that uh, congratulations, stairs your day, you're off to a great place, you're off and away, brains your head and your feet and your shoes, you can see yourself any direction you choose, selling soap or something. Mm. Furious. But was, yeah. I wonder, when you were saying about the My Fair uh, Dahlia and that what would be the, you know, the oddest mixer... That idea of genre, and I was thinking something like a Bollywood film, 
where what is it that our culture i think you know the kind of english language uh the majority of plays films etc they are within this is the category this exists in this is the category this exists in but sometimes you will watch a bollywood movie and you'll go if you catch it in a certain moment you'll presume it's a great big glamorous musical if you catch it in another moment you'll presume it's a piece of social commentary if you catch it another moment it may well appear to be a spy film all of these things going on it's perhaps because uh, Bollywood does not have the same, and I'm talking completely off the top of my head here, so I might be 100% wrong. It might be that Bollywood does not have the same concept of genre that Western work seems to have. Uh, I really don't know, but it strikes me that that could do it. That uh, over here, there is... And I presume that this was kind of made up by some wretched sort of junior sales assistant at WH Smith's in the early 20th century or something. So it wasn't when John Dowie was working in WH Smith, by the way. No, it so wasn't later, John Dowie. In a later at all. podcast, you'll find blameless. out more about John Dowie. He's blameless and all this. <laughs> but, uh, but it's like that somebody just thought, oh, it would be more convenient if we could actually have at the on the bottom of the spine we could actually say whether this is science fiction or mystery or romance or whatever mm. whereas i mean all of those things i mean all genres as far as i can see didn't they all kind of or at least most of them emerge out of gothic fiction i mean i think that i mean you've got sort of uh, Jane Austen and writers like her who were more or less confined to the comedy of manners. Yeah. And then you got Horace Walpole brings out the castle of Otranto, uh, which is taking all of the most ghoulish and ghastly bits from the graveyard poets and making it into this new form of ghastly literature. I think that the general critics, they were saying, well, this is not literature in the same way that Jane Austen is literature. Therefore, this is not literature at all because it is cheap and sensationalistic and has no refined higher feelings. Um, so, and almost all genre comes out of Gothic. I mean, like crime fiction, uh, Mills and Boone bodice rippers, supernatural fiction, science fiction. I mean, the first science fiction book, arguably, is Frankenstein. Yeah, definitely. Which is also a gothic novel. Um, you know, it's like maybe in Bollywood they have a healthier kind of grasp of genre that, see, what kind of, yeah, there's a great appeal to genre stories because you kind of know what you're going to get. And also, you can have great fun with genre stories by breaking the genre. Mm. If you've got something to actually upset or to, to fight against, that can turn into some really wonderful stories that... I mean, genre is there for, for transcending, really. 
How you conscious know. is your... Because I was thinking there's that great line in The Simpsons where, what's it, I can't remember which is the superhero that you change from being a superhero into a heroin-addicted jazz critic who has no superpowers Radioactive whatsoever. man, I believe. Radioactive man, yeah. And I'm surprised that you've missed that part of my oeuvre. <laughs> the, uh, who is it? It's you, Daniel Clowes, I think, is and in Art that one. Spiegelman, Art Spiegelman, yeah. And, um, but that, something like Swamp Thing, which I presume is you know, one of the main things they might be referencing there, yeah. Which is how conscious was your right? I'm in charge of this, and I can. I'm going to rewrite the whole thing, and I'm going to be able to. I'm going to start using language and plots and ideas, which in the most conventional sense of those kind of uh, superhero stories, people would not initially go, "Well, we're green like that." It was probably very conscious. I mean, I'd I'd like to pretend that this was all just some kind of intuitive leap but um no i was looking at comics critically this is probably the first my first approach to almost anything you kind of look at a thing and think right why don't i like this um what is wrong with this from my point of view yeah and then you try to put that right and like looking at things like swamp thing i thought well they're missing a lot of tricks here that actually, you know, this, this, this creature's made of some sort of plant life. I mean, just think about the language that that gives you access to. Descriptions of, of flowers and parts of flowers, all that, that language. And sort of, you could, of course, talk about environmental issues with that. So that seemed kind of... Uh, and you could also subvert the horror genre by having stories in it that were not particularly horrible, but which had got, you know, uh, another reason, another sort of point to them, like erotic stories, things like that. Just look at what doesn't exist. It's kind of like, if you're looking at a thing, look at the negative space around it. Look at the stuff that isn't there. And I was looking at the captions and I was thinking, these are perfunctory and often completely redundant. Some of them are just telling you what you can already see in the panel. Mm. Whereas you could use this for a kind of poetry that would give a different feel and an, a different element to these, you know, fairly ordinary monster stories. Um yeah, I think that when I started comics, I was aware of a lot of things that just didn't exist. And so I decided that that would be quite a good strategy. to And to try and bring in things from outside comics, because it was a very insular field. Um, it sort of barely had noticed modernism or anything like that, that that just hadn't impacted upon comics. So there were tons of things that were kind of commonplace in other art forms that were just um, not practiced in, in comic books. So that seemed like it couldn't hurt to just try and export some of those values from other fields that comic readers perhaps wouldn't have encountered before. When did you... Sorry, Josie, you want to say? No, I'm just... I, it, my problem is I'm just really enjoying uh, 
listening to. So I'm just like, yes, Aww. please can please continue. Which I'll is tell you what, it turns out she can't have enjoyed listening to anyone else we recorded today. I was chatting away, yeah, wasn't chatting I? away, weren't yeah. you? No, no respect. We better no, cut that out in case it, they find out. It's like because with arts emergency we have this thing of sometimes if you want something to exist you have to make it yourself and the idea that you would be looking at this genre that you were really familiar with but being like you're not quite giving me what I need and the only person who's going to be able to do that is me I'm afraid do do you know what I mean and because it wasn't quite working in the way that you thought it should that's what brought brought you into kind of your approach of it isn't that true of like your comedy or yours? Yeah, any sort of creative. Yeah, <coughs> I think that's why creative people do it because they're like, ah, oh, this isn't. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're just not going to be satisfied unless it's exactly what we want. Yeah. You know, and and also back in the early eighties, late seventies, when I was first starting to appear in comics, it it should be remembered that the competition really wasn't that sophisticated it it a lot of the stuff that made me look good was the relative paucity of the the rest of the field and yes there were a lot of exceptions to that but overall uh the field was pretty stagnant and nobody cared about it which gives you a lot of freedom actually and that's something that i quite miss because back in the early days of comics a lot of it was about sneaking things past your editor and that was really enjoyable yeah you know sort of finding strategies whereby you could actually get something previously unacceptable um in there and in this way kind of a thin end of the wedge approach where you can slowly get more and more uh, liberation for a more freedom of movement in the medium I heard a brilliant thing I was reading the other day. Uh, have either of you read David Foster Wallace? You have, haven't you? Yeah. I've read the Cruise article. Yeah. That's all I've managed. What, it's pathetic. The, uh, a supposedly fun thing that I'll never do again? Yeah. Isn't that a great title? Yeah. But uh, I was reading, I've got his book uh, that he did with Mark Costello called Signifying Rappers. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. It's great. He, he did it when he was 26 in yeah. 1989. And he, he's talking about... Uh, he's doing a kind of deep reading of the rap scene as a committed rap fan who I think at the end of it he he kind of comes to the conclusion that rap is probably doomed by its own kind of contradictions. But there's one bit where he's talking about Chuck D defending uh, some of his lyrics and it's got Chuck D defending um, my Uzi weighs a ton. Oh, yeah. And Chuck D was saying, well, when I say Uzi, what I mean is my talent, because my talent is my weapon. So I'm using Uzi as a reference for my talent. And David Foster Wallace was saying, actually, that is assuming that... Chuck D's cheek was tongueless. He said that is actually brilliant and scary because it's a complete inversion of um, metonymy, whereby in in normal pop songs, then uh, he gives the example of 
here is my love, I'd love to love you, baby. And he says, now, what that obviously means is, here is my dick, I'd love to fuck you, baby. Right. He says, but um, the entertainer can sort of smile at his audience and say, hey, I'm only singing about love. What's so wrong with love? He says, what Chuck D has done has, he says, he's talking about an Uzi, which is a real mow-down weapon, which one might have thought that it perhaps wasn't wise to talk about in 1989 New York. But by a complete genius inversion of that, Chuck D is more or less saying, well, what's wrong with the word dick? Because by dick, I just mean love. And he says, this is a stroke of genius which actually removes a context for something which is actually goes back to the Greeks. He said, Chuck D is actually being pre-European in the way that he is arguing his way out of this corner. Mm. You know, it's... Um, I, I do miss that. I miss the sort of uh, sneaking things through. Because these days, when they'll just let you do anything, um, there's no... There's less fun in it, and there's less incitement. But do they let... That's an interesting thing. By the way, I was thinking, if only David Foster Wallace had written an essay on the work of George Formby. Because I was thinking <laughs> of... Who was that rapper who had... Very famous, become an actor now as well, and he had Candy Shop, which I want to take to the Candy Shop, let you lick my lollipop, which is almost exactly the same as George Formby's little stick of Blackpool rock along the promenade, I stroll it, maybe stick it, but they never complain. It's nice to have a nibble at it, but now and again. Which actually didn't manage to get past the BBC censors. I always thought, how do you manage to get it past the BBC censors in the 40s? Oh, we didn't. There we go, that's fair enough. But that, um, that bit of they'll let you do anything, but is, are there now, rather than what might have been you know, a, a censorship of ideas, uh, a commercial censorship, which is a censorship of finance, which says, we don't think that's going to make us enough money. So it doesn't matter what you're going to create. If people will watch it, buy it, whatever, then you can do whatever you want. But if your artistic of... idea... Sorry. No, 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 just to add, I also think there is a lot of con... uh, small-c conservatism when it comes to commissioning things. Maybe not. Although I think that these days... It's the same um, thing, These days, transgression sells. It's completely uh, changed it around. From when I was starting, when I was doing some of this stuff in comics, uh, it was a real struggle to get some of these things in there um, until they noticed that it was selling better with every issue. And then there was very little resistance to anything. Hmm. Um, and these days, I think that immediately after I'd kind of done my early work, I think that they thought, hey, this, this transgressive stuff, that really sells. Let's encourage a lot of our writers to try and be a bit transgressive in their stories. So transgressive becomes merely aggressive, I suppose, you know, and um, there's nothing trans about it. It's, uh, it's what's expected. That's another thing that makes it difficult to actually work um, it, there's no, there's nothing to work against. Um, if people are encouraging you to be transgressive, that is the end of transgression, surely. It's like having hippie parents and then rebelling by working in a bank. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's sort of if you're given all of that kind of freedom, then what what actually means anything? Mm. You've got to kind of um, redefine your territory or perhaps move to different media where there's uh, different situations, different circumstances. What were the hardest ideas then when you were first writing uh, for, for the, the publishers? What, what was the, the hardest kind of thing to, to fight to get on? Are there any particular ideas where you thought, you know, there, here is resistance, but I reckon I can sneak it in? Well, I remember when I was a little way into Swamp Thing and, uh, what was it? Um, the one that met the most resistance was something that I'd done by accident. I wasn't even aware what I was doing. Uh, the artist had let the book um, down again. So I was asked to come up with a story really, really quickly so that standing artists could do it. And I was writing very fast. Uh, there wasn't time to censor myself. Um, and I kind of realised that this story had ended up... This story, which has got loads of insects all over it, bugs crawling all over it, um, it ended up being about a kind of a a really sinister supernatural form of incest. I hadn't actually realised the insect. When I was writing the story, I hadn't thought, oh, that's an anagram. But uh, thus it turned out to be. Uh, that was the one where the Comics Code Authority that had been running since 1954, I think almost for exactly 30 years, they refused to put their little stamp on that. And DC, who had seen the sales figures, uh, for the first time said, OK, we'll put it out without a Comics Code thing, which was the breaking of the Comics Code. It's not even a real thing anymore. Wow. But um, the one that probably where I thought, like I say, with that one, I wasn't expecting it to... I didn't think I'd done anything that so bad. So what was it in terms of incestuous insects? You wouldn't... Amount, what, what do you think... Well, it, actually, whoever... it wasn't the insects being incestuous. It was part of the plot where one of the main characters realises that the person that for the past 20 issues or something she has thought was her husband was in fact possessed by the spirit of her dead uncle. Uh, this is pretty unpleasant, but it was a horror comic. Yeah. You know, and I hadn't actually thought that this was going to be too much of an issue. Yeah. Because that stuff doesn't happen in real life. Um, <laughs> but it was a lighter one when I was doing the uh, the American Gothic series, which where the idea was, why don't I take things like werewolves, vampires, haunted houses, zombies, and then actually use those kind of standard horror tropes to actually tell stories about things that I actually think are horrific about America. Huh. So I did the one about zombies was actually talking about a slave a plantation. So uh, I was using like zombies to talk about racism and we actually got quite a good response from that. I'd got I remember some members, some readers from the American South uh, were saying, Yeah, we thought that was a great story. Yeah, we are really racist. Um, the, and then I did something about the one that 
This didn't cause me the most trouble with the readership, but it was the one that I thought would be the dodgiest. I'd thought, right, werewolves. Um, werewolves change into a wolf once a month. Right. And I thought, women have a period. Is there some way that I could use a werewolf to talk about taboos, uh, about and talk about oppression against women and taboos against menstruation, things like that? Yeah. And I thought I did a really good story of it. That that was a harder sell to the editorial people, uh, and that was one where I kind of expected it because that's just yucky. So, you know, like the zombies and everything, that's fine. But sort of menstruation, I mean, come on. See, that's interesting. You have things like Angela Carter's stories in The Bloody Chamber, which, again, use kind of werewolf mythology in, in that, or Ginger Snaps after your work, yeah. which is... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, again, where that's the whole sexualization thing is, is suddenly the, this monster that appears as puberty arrives as well. Yeah, I was going to, on the horror thing because we should talk about some of your books and influences, and we will we'll talk briefly about Jerusalem. We won't talk too much because we've got to talk about Jerusalem tonight, um, which I think is uh, that old thing about you know you're not looking at the territory, you're looking you know, to the map, not the territory. And in the case of Jerusalem, I think it's the territory as well. I, I think, think so. you have got the whole of yeah. uh, Northampton <laughs> at, at too two, for a map, two scale. Um, but H.P. Lovecraft seems to have become more and more apparent. And you were obviously with Providence, which is coming out at the moment. The yeah. Uh, uh, the comic book series there. Do you remember when you really, and you've got, you know, at home, you have a huge shelf of H.P. Lovecraft and, and critiques of H.P. Lovecraft, a lot of work there. What was it that drew you to him? Because he has a, his history. You mean you know, aside the misogyny and the racism? Yeah, <laughs> apart from the misogyny and racism. Yeah, well, apart, apart from, from that, the key Alan Moore tenets. I suppose I, I'd heard of H.P. Lovecraft and I'd heard that his horror writing wasn't the same as other people's. And I remember when I was about 12 or something, one Christmas, uh, I got my parents to cough up for the five shillings or whatever it was for um, the, I think it was a panther book, At the Mountains of Madness, which had got like one of the most horrific, uh, irrelevant covers. that I, not, I don't mean horrific in a good sense. Uh, it had just got a really dreadful cover. Um... But I bought it. I looked through for the shortest story because I, I hadn't really got much of a commitment to longer works back then. You know, obviously t things have changed for me. But sort of uh, the shortest one was the uh, the statement of Randolph Carter, which is four or five pages long and is an absolute corker. The well, at least when I reading it when I was twelve, uh, I was stunned. And I went and read uh, the other stories. And I'll be, Lovecraft is a really addictive flavour. Uh, then I had, I think people go through, in their relationship with H.P. Lovecraft, they probably go through different stages. Like By the time I was about 14 or 15, I'd probably read some of Colin Wilson's rather snotty thoughts about H.P. Lovecraft, where he pointed out, well, of course, Lovecraft can't actually write. And I thought, no, of course not. I should have, I, I realised that all along. Huh. Uh, I've never really liked him. That's a dream, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I never yeah. loved him, I never yeah. loved him. Yeah, it, yeah, it does, it's a strength of dream. And sort of, and 
then I suppose later when I got a bit more confident in my tastes I thought no actually I actually really do like HP Lovecraft and I don't really care whether it's fine literature or not mm. it's doing something and I used to think it's perhaps because Lovecraft seemed to be in some senses almost omniphobic he seemed to be frightened of almost everything and everybody or at least to understand the fear that was in things I mean especially in physics more than probably most people of his time he kind of understood what uh, Einstein's theory of relativity actually meant in terms of the human race that sort of all of a sudden we were relegated to a relatively tiny speck in a universe that was completely relative um, where it was difficult to make any statement that was actually fundamentally true in and of itself and that's where all of his unfathomable monsters come from and it's like I thought that that maybe it's because yet yeah, Lovecraft was so frightened of these things that he communicates his own fear maybe that's why he was so good but after doing Providence and reading these books of Lovecraft criticism I'm starting to realize that he was a lot sharper than I gave him credit for I mean for one thing he ranted about modernists he absolutely hated them he wrote a parody of the wasteland called waste paper which hmm. is actually a really good funny poem but he, he hated Gertrude Stein he hated James Joyce he hated T.S. Eliot and yet he's a kind of closet modernist he's using all of these weird modernist techniques glossolalia stream of consciousness um, but he's not admitting to it he's kind of is it like they wouldn't, modernism they wouldn't let him in their cool gang so he was that like was i don't it. want so to be in their was, gang to, but he was actually much cooler and more modern than the gang that he was in and like there's once you start to look at it there's evidence all over the place like um like for example people often say the reason he's a bad writer is because he uses all these adjectives um no, actually, that, that's not a flaw. That's a technique. Um, in the, the scene in the Dunwich Horror, where Wilbur Whiteley is disintegrating on a library floor, and he describes Wilbur Whiteley's decomposing body, um, and he talks about different parts of it, and they've all got completely different textures. You know, there's eyes set into the hips, um there's the back looks like snake skin there are bursts of tentacles coming out of the you 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 read this description and you cannot possibly put it together in your mind into a coherent picture which is what lovecraft was going for mm. or he'll tell you three things that great cthulhu who doesn't quite look like or best of all in the color out of space He's got this brilliant line where he says, in fact, it was only a colour by analogy. So what was it? Was it a smell? Was it a particularly rough texture? Was it a piece of music? What? You know, and that's the thing. He, he's trying to 
he was being really sophisticated in trying to unsettle the readership by describing things that could not be described. And uh, See, I think that's why people fear him, is you're not even sure how to say Cthulhu, so therefore you decide to read something else which has less complex kind yeah, of... But that's... The, it is... Because uh, I've, I've only read him quite recently. I mean, I read some, again, probably they probably the Mayflower Book of Black Magic, Volume 1 or something, <laughs> I think, probably popped up in some of those. And uh, But that... Uh, it's interesting when people try and turn him into films, and try and it very the nearest I think to a good one is uh, in the Mouth of Madness, which isn't officially an H.P. Lovecraft film, John Carpenter movie, but it does have that really disconcerting sense that the in some ways the fabric of space time is not quite working the way that it uh, should do, what happens and that, in that things film? are. It's basically about there's an author called Sutter Kane, mm -hmm. and people seem to it starts off with a wonderful scene with Sam Neill, who's an <coughs> investigator, and you just see this guy in the background, and suddenly you realise he just a mad axe man and he comes and smashes it and people who are reading Sutter Kane's latest book uh, are going insane and attacking people and killing them and their eyes have gone very bizarre and then off goes uh, Sam Neill's detective to go investigate in this strange what's it called Hobbs End so it's got also all those names like Hobbs End which I think is also the name possibly of the tube stop in Quatermass and the Pit, Nigel yeah, Neal being another is. big uh, influence. Right. And and once he gets there, he basically finds that the author is, well, beyond shamanism, he is using his work to uh, invite through these strange... Gargoyle would be wrong because gargoyles have a little bit too much human face, but, you know, that bit of that kind of Francis Bacon look, which, again, sometimes feels like H.P. Lovecraft and Francis Bacon, I think, can go very well together. I, I thought that that particular film, it struck me that that had probably taken something from uh, one of the early books by Jonathan Carroll called The Land of Laughs which is about um, a beloved old time writer of children's stories kind of they're children's stories that are beloved by adults because of their fantastic invention yeah. um, there's characters in them like Krang who is an angry kite that is forever having a war with the wind. Uh, that sounds great, you know. So these people go off to look for this writer, and just as in uh, in the Mouth of Madness, they find that he is kind of writing his entire environment, um, that everybody is kind of having to put up with seeing this talking kite hanging around occasionally. But it becomes really frightening because that shouldn't happen in reality. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's sort of. Uh, I think the best, actually, the best Lovecraft film, and and there's been a few of them. I mean, like the first one was uh, the Haunted Palace of Edgar Allan Poe, uh, which is actually Charles Dexter Ward by mm. H.P. Lovecraft, but nobody had ever heard of H.P. Lovecraft. So Roger Corman was making it. He'd just been making all the Poe films. Poe wrote a poem called The Haunted Palace. So they thought, yeah, we'll call this The Haunted Palace of Edgar Allan Poe. And no one's really got to grips with Lovecraft. It, Doesn't it have to exist in the head, though? It has to, in some ways, that horror that, because when we were talking before, and I mentioned it in, in another podcast, which actually be later in the series, the Gully Jimson thing that I was saying to you oh, about yeah. why can't it, you know, why doesn't it look like what exists in my head? Yeah. And the, I, that individual, especially I think with horror, that's why, you know, masterful horror very often shows you nothing. 
you know, gory horror is very different to that horror that remains yes. with you yeah. because you created a lot of those things. You created what was in the corner. The, the flash of that, you know, that moment where if you actually see a still in The Exorcist of whatever's meant to be Satan or whatever, you know, it's that kind of just someone in, in makeup, really, well, exactly. a skull then in makeup. If you see that, for, if you just saw that for a second longer, you go, oh, all right. But because it goes, zoom, and you, you yeah. are putting together half of that yeah, image. Exactly. I mean, it's... I think it's almost like, sorry, you, you were going to say something? No, no, I, I, it was all just backing up. <laughs> I was oh, like, yeah, yeah I I'll needed back a bit of backup on this no, one no. as well, Josie. I'm getting really lost. Okay, this, as somebody who's not read H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, what would you say people should begin with? What would you say people should read? I'd have to qualify all of it. Ha! Um, I like the one, what's the one in the museum? Uh, which is a nice short one and just gets the sense of fear of the man who visits the late night museum and there's you, there's a lot of uncertainty and he goes down the stairs and... Uh, oh, that's not horror in the museum, boy. Do you know what? It probably is something like horror. Hazel Heald. It, it was a, no, it is one, one of his. his. It's definitely but one of actually, his. Actually, a lot of them, a lot of his alleged collaborations, he wrote most of them. Right. Um, I'd say... The absolute, the better HP. They've all got reasons to to like them, or at least most of them have. I'd say the lighter ones. If you want to find out why Lovecraft is really, really good, look at him at the top of his game when he was doing things like uh, the Shadow Out of Time, the Color Out of Space, the Shadow Over Innsmouth. They've all got very similar titles, those last ones, actually, thinking about it. But, uh, yeah, The Haunter of the Dark. Um, Do you think he just had a, a bag of one and a bag of the other, and he was like... Where he got his adjectives. Bicycle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he... But there's so much of, of Lovecraft now, I mean, that he wrote uh, more poems than he wrote short stories. He wrote more essays than he wrote poems. Oh. And he wrote, in his lifetime, they estimate something like a hundred thousand letters, Ooh. sometimes two or three a day, ranging from brief postcards to things that were sort of seventeen pages long. And most of these are, they've survived and they're in collected form. It's interesting to get to grips with Lovecraft because he is a big problem for anybody in the modern era who is not a member of like Aryan nation or something like that. I mean, he, he was a racist until the end of his life. And I thought he'd got a bit better. Is that not he true? Then? No, he, a lot of people would say this. He wasn't a conservative until the end of his life. Right. I mean, he'd started out as an arch conservative who thought that basically poor people had got it coming, even though he wasn't rich. But he'd got delusions of having come from uh, a slightly better than average family, although they'd long since declined. Um, in his later life, he he described himself as being to the left of the New Deal. So he'd had a really radical uh, change of heart on the financial scene. And he married a Jewish woman. Um, and would still continue his anti-Semitic rants against groups of Jews that he happened to see on the street. And when his wife would remind him, actually, I'm Jewish, Howard, and he'd say, oh, yes, of course, but you are the exception, my dear. Um, 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff about H.P. Lovecraft that a modern reader would have a lot of difficulty in swallowing. And in some of his stories, there is naked racism, you know, um, and a lot of other attitudes. There's very few women in his stories and uh, very few that are in anything like a, um, a complimentary role. Um, but... I would still say, uh, much as I despise a lot of Lovecraft's worldview and his opinions, I'd still say that he's worth reading because he's articulating something that is very true of his times. This is something that I only realised when I was uh, researching Providence, that um, yeah, Lovecraft was anti-Bolshevik. So was everybody in America. The Russian Revolution had only been two or three years previously, and everybody was terrified that it was going to happen in America, and I believe in England. I, I mean, the, uh, the destruction of the boroughs commenced in 1918, when the soldiers were coming home from war, and I think that was because, yeah, what's happened in Russia, it suddenly doesn't look like a good idea to have loads of working-class people in a coherent community... Yeah. Uh, 1919 in um, in Glasgow, you know, you've got this big uprising in George Square where they send in tanks and, you know, to break yeah. it up and to murder people because, it, like, they'd, you know, before the war, I, I just love Red Clydeside so much, and I've started like reading about it. But you know, they That's elected a socialist thing. slate. The whole the whole slate they elected in Glasgow was on the far left, and then you know they were freaking out. So then in George Square, you have this thing where it's you know, on a, on the absolute cusp of a socialist revolution in Glasgow. And then they're like, bring the tanks in, get them out. And that was all because of what had happened in Russia. Mm. Uh, they were suddenly terrified. This could happen here. Uh, yeah, H.P. Lovecraft, he's uneasy about women. I don't think he's a misogynist, but he's uneasy about women. In 1920, nearly everybody in America was uneasy about women because they were just about to get the vote. Mm. Uh, he was... Uh, uneasy about immigrants or foreign people because in common with a lot of people in America the previous 20 years had seen more immigrants arriving at Ellis Island and the popular perception was we're being swamped that kind of Brexit UKIP sort of uh, easy you know view upon this that can people can be made to think that they are being swamped even by a, a one in fifty minority, you know. Um, so he was, he was talking about that in his work. He was all of the things that Lovecraft. Uh, people talk about him as oh yes, he was the ultimate outsider. I'd say that actually he's the insider. Hmm. That he most perfectly embodies the fears of white middle class men, um, in. Christian, well, no, he, he wasn't a Christian man, he was an atheist. Uh, but he, he perfectly embodied the fears of middle-class America in 1920. Um, so it's interesting, that outsider thing, because it's almost like in the photo, the photo that's most commonly used of him, he does look slightly surprised in his glasses with the, the, the paleness weird. of it. Yeah. And there was this, that great book which we talked about before by uh, James Hawes, uh, the guy who wrote uh, Merck with, uh, with Fins, I think oh, it is. Yeah. But he, yeah. he wrote a book about Kafka. 
which was kind of going, uh, everyone likes that. Here's the picture of Kafka looking like a scared vole. And actually, you know, he was very different human being. If you actually really look at his life and he said things like, you know, this huge connection of collection of pornography and uh, like kept Kirsten. in Oxford University. And, and also, in the, uh, Kafka, apparently once he came across this little child who had lost a dolly um, was inconsolable and Kafka didn't know the child said oh that's all right I, I saw him uh he was just he told me to tell you that he was going off on holiday uh and that he'd keep in touch and then Kafka for the rest of his life I believe sent postcards oh. to this this kid from this toy or dolly in its journeys around Czechoslovakia and the world it was only when he started dressing up as the doll and tapping on the window and scratching with his fingernails and saying, Dolly's home, that everyone felt that Kafka had taken what seemed like an act of kindness into something ghostly and haunting. But that's it. People want their writers. Though. In the same way that you, as a writer, very often people go, oh, Alan Moore, very forbidding, very, he's a loner. He, he sits in his... I heard the other day. Well, <laughs> I've seen most. But, it's like, yeah. but those... So that there is this kind of strange... That there is a, a vision of you, which I would say doesn't match up with certainly, you know, our experience. The uh, of, of just going, me, aren't I? Yeah, you <laughs> just go down for a pizza, don't you? Yeah, so that's yeah. the thing as well. You I think, I wonder where like Alan me. Moore would eat. Probably it would be a strange cellar where there will be people, everyone will be dressed like those old music hall acts that were half man, half woman. And there would, it would be a place of, of flesh and darkness and what kind of, what would he eat? And he did, oh, uh, the, the cheese mushrooms and then the Fiorentina and then probably yeah. a couple of scoops of ice cream. So but, it's a, but that thing where... It's like on our last one, where, uh, on the podcast where you came on, this is 10 years ago now maybe, maybe less, but where you said that you like lush bath bombs. I remember we've got loads of people getting in touch that were like, that could not believe that you you exist in the same universe as the lush shop did, and bath bombs. Did I tell you about um, that they were going to actually make a scent that was based upon me, that I was actually approached <gasps> That's amazing. by the people in Lush, and they said, um, yeah, we're, we're thinking about doing a line of products sort of based around you, and what sort of scent do you associate with yourself? Ooh. And I said, well, that would be... Hashish and superiority. <laughs> and they've since told me that they, they can actually manage the hashish. They've got something that smells like hashish, but they're bewildered by the smell of superiority. <laughs> but um, no, I still go in there quite a lot. You know, I like uh, that. It's a scent called morphine <laughs> as well. Morphine. It'll be good. It'll sell. It'll sell. sell I would like you now to create a scent that is then advertised by Kate Moss. And which therefore ruins your reputation. Yeah, because we tried to turn you into a stand-up comic a few years ago that to ruin work, you. Did that didn't no. work. But no. I believe now, if they make some kind of slow-mo advert with the scent of you, and the clouds are just made up of your beard, while Kate Moss wanders under it. Kind oh, of... that. Yeah, I think that you've you've kind of you've given me a retirement plan. Yeah, <laughs> that would totally work. What's that smell? Mm. Mm. Alan Moore. Yeah. Just more. More. Just more. More. That would, yeah, you've got it there. That's great. Thank you. You're hired. Thank well you done. very much. The, I, um, go on. I know. I was thinking about we did this um, show in Milton Keynes once. This is five years ago, almost to the day. Christ, was that, was five, that, years was that five years ago? Five years ago. Yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it? Well, I, I told everybody that I was the god who had created Milton Keynes. <laughs> yes. And they, they still believe me. The primitive, superstitious people of Milton Keynes still worship me. 
as a kind of deity, so I believe. Every time the trees die, they blame you, which means they're blaming you quite regularly. That's true. A lot of dead trees. But he's got the run of the uh, of the shop, the main shopping centre, yeah. and the key. Yeah, absolutely. He's going there whenever he wants. Okay. Anytime he wants to unicycle near Halfords. Oh, he's more than his welcome. unicycling yeah. bell. <laughs> if I just want a kind of thrash around in the middle of Legoland, I can. <laughs> 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 the um, we haven't talked about but other people's books beyond H.P. Lovecraft, and we talk about we will talk about. Uh, well, I don't know whether we should. We might talk. Let's talk about Jerusalem tonight uh, because it is a. It's. I, I know I've joked about the hugeness of it, and everyone is kind of daunted by it. And did you know? We'll just quickly talk about Jerusalem. When you started writing it, did you know already that it would be of epic proportions, or as I had a you feeling it would be big. Uh, because I was trying to get such a lot of things into it. It probably technically should have been four or five books, but I just got, I wanted to get them all into one book. Mm-hmm. And so I knew it would probably be quite big. I knew it would also only be 35 chapters, but I didn't know how long those chapters would be. It wasn't until I think I'd finished the end of the first book and for... Oh, actually, if they're all as long as this, then this is going to be enormous. Uh, that was the first time that I actually realised the scale of the thing. How long did it take you as an undertaking? Probably, given time off for good behaviour, about ten years. But like after, I mean, other books have taken me longer. I mean, Lost Girls took us about sixteen years. Wow, really? And From Hell was ten. Wow. And sort of uh, Jerusalem. Um, like when I got to the end of the Lucia Joyce chapter, that had kind of dented my brain in some way. I was having trouble with the ordinary English language. I just felt exhausted. Yeah. And I thought, this would be dreadful. If I carry on writing Jerusalem, that exhaustion is going to show in the writing and it's going to be there for all time. Yeah. So, what I need to do now is to stop doing Jerusalem and do um, a lovely underground magazine for the next sort of uh, 18 months or whatever. And yeah, that did the trick. By the time I'd finished that, I was ready to return refreshed. How do you do it? Because that that chapter, which is, I suppose it's Finnegan's Wake elements of of that, would it be fair to say in terms of some of the the style of it? Yeah, it's not as good though. And it has, but but it is shorter. It is uh, and it's uh, a mixture of, uh, at times, what would appear to be babble, but within the babble is story. So there is, you can't totally get away with it being, you know, just an act of, of utterly pointless surrealism. There, there is narrative with it. There's so that, how do you? What what was the process? How long did it take you? Do, do you have to keep go? Did you have to keep taking runs at it and then go? No, this doesn't have the correct rhythm. Did you read it out aloud? Because I I find that when I'm reading when I read Jerusalem, very often there are certain chapters where it is impossible to read it without your voice. Some of them, your as in literally, you feel that your voice is physically there. And at other times, you can you're just reading it like a book, and then you go this particular. Like the chapters involving Marla, especially the second chapter involving uh, uh, Marla, which is very much towards the end of the book, and uh, I won't say wraps things up, but there are, but that that needed your voice in my, or didn't need it, it happened. Yeah, that, that's probably true. Uh, difficult for me to actually to see that. I'm not sure. They've all got different voices. 
when I'm actually writing them. I suppose they are all my voice. But um, the women characters have got like squeakier, higher voices. <laughs> but they still sound like me, but just doing a, doing a woman's voice. Yeah, I, I imagine it basically as uh, Terry Jones smoking a pipe with some old tobacco. That's the voice of the women that comes out. So I hope that was the correct That noise. is probably exactly what I was going for. I wanted to ask you, but I, th I think you sort of half-answered it because to my mind I was going to say, well, how do you keep the faith in a work over 10 years? But I suppose in some ways for you it's like you have to keep taking the breaks because otherwise it's too much. Well, you, you have to... You ha having to take the break, that was just something that I found out, oh, right... When you do a book this long, you have to take a break. Yeah. I kind of learned that. But a lot of it was doing a huge book. You'd think it would just be, all right, it's just going to be a time thing. This will be like writing three normal-sized novels or something. And it's not at all. Because all of a sudden, there are lots of structural things that don't mean the same thing anymore. I mean, you're doing a normal novel. You can establish your plot points. And you can be relatively certain that by the time that you pick up those plot points again, people will still remember yeah. the original scene. But you're doing something of the scale of Jerusalem. You have to find ways of uh, reiterating stuff, reminding people. Yeah, Rem Remember this character that we mentioned at the beginning? Well, we're mentioning them again now. Just just keep them in your mind and, and you'll be seeing them again later. Mm. Um you have to kind of plot it in a, a much different way. Um, and there has to be more plot. Or at least I thought there did. And uh, so there's a ton of stories that are kind of running through Jerusalem and resolving themselves in one way or another. Uh, but, yeah, the pacing is different. Um kind of almost the language you have to use. I mean, there was a a skid mark on a pavement in the prelude that I wanted people to remember in the last chapter. And so I described it as this tire tread burnt onto the pavement. I described it as a black anaconda laminate. And I thought, yeah, that's a that's a memorable, that's a lovely phrase, and it's kind of memorable. I hope that by anchoring it with some lovely language like that, when people get to the last chapter, they might just think black anaconda laminate, and remember the, you know, it's it's a way of putting little kind of hooks or references in the story so that the reader has at least got a chance of containing it all in his or her head. It basically, it, one, I think it probably is an act like Sutter Kane from In the Mouth of Madness. If you've ever seen the film uh, The Omen, yes. remember Patrick Troughton has all the pages of the Bible pasted up around his room. Yeah. I feel that eventually there will be certain people who read Jerusalem who have about seven copies, and they're constantly cutting out different sentences and connecting them to another part of the book, and there will be arrows everywhere, and there will be different post-it notes, and slowly they will... Because it is that, that the density of it. I mean, like, I haven't been to Northampton since I've read it, and I'm not sure I can you know, now. You need to. Just be, no, but because now it's populated by so many ghosts, there is so much in terms of whether it's physics or psychogeography or social comment, all of those different things mean that every different... I mean, it is very useful to wander around Northampton beforehand 
a few times because there are, you know, I know it not reasonably well, I've been there many times, but all of those places are now populated hmm. by new characters, both living and dead. So you've turned Northampton into a very elegant horror ride. Well, I, this I, could be your Thorpe Park. Well, it'd be Harry Potter world, it'd be, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, my, I, I, we've had, I had one of my mates phone up and say that he's been talking to a lot of people on social media uh, about who are also reading Jerusalem at the moment. Huh. And he was saying that he's had a few people tweet him to ask if Puck's hats are real. Uh, this is a kind of fourth dimensional fungus that you'll find turning up in Jerusalem. But and they're completely unreal sounding, <laughs> but uh, I write about them with such conviction. <laughs> so, also, the name is perfect. Puck's hat, of course. It sounds there like is there some old English been. kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. mushroom. Like oh, group. don't eat the Puck's hat. Yes. You can eat any of the others. And but... I've given them lots of other alternate names like Bedlam Jennies, <laughs> um, which sounds real. Yeah, you know. Um, now, I, I hope people will come away from this with perhaps an expanded view of reality, you know. Mm. Um, but, uh, no, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting seeing... I'm, I'm most pleased by the fact that people that I know, uh, like my, my brother himself, he actually phoned up. Uh, I mean, he is the... the I suppose, for want of a better word, hero of the book, although I think he's rather a disappointing hero, to be <laughs> honest. But he phoned up and said, uh, oh, Murray. He said, uh, because we call each other Murray. Uh, he said, well, Murray, I've, I've just started reading Jerusalem. So I said, oh, have you got to the bottom of the publisher's indicia yet? And he, he pretended that he'd got all the way to the end of the first book. But he was, as the only survivor of that household, that kind of landscape. Um, he was saying, he said, yeah, actually, that all could have happened, couldn't it? And that that was perfect. That is the best compliment ever. He was saying that there's nothing to say that that didn't happen. Um, so, you know... I mean, but it's your autobiography as well as the autobiography of Northampton in one way, isn't it? In some, no, I mean, I in as much as I would imagine you would ever write an autobiography, that there seemed to be what I would imagine because there are real, a lot of real characters in there, including Melinda, your 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 your, your wife, Melinda, co-creator co of, of Lost Girls, uh, and many other things. Is uh, you know she appears in it, and other people who really exist yeah. they pop up in it, and of course the historical character, and so that blurring. I'm always I'm thinking what what happened at that point in his childhood that created that not from a psychotherapeutic way. Actually, a lot of the stuff in there is just completely true, um, and it's it's kind of odd when you write a book that is self-referential to the point where you're including people that you know in it, people who are dead, people who are still alive. I was down. There's a character in the book called uh, Benedict Perrett. Mm. Um, I was down at Cafe Nero in Northampton uh, giving a copy of Jerusalem to the real Benedict Parrott huh. and uh, he'd asked if his ex-wife uh, could have one as well and yeah I know her, she's a lovely woman so I brought down a copy for her as well. Now at the beginning of Jerusalem on the dedication page it's dedicated to, uh, to Audrey Vernon, the best piano of Accordionist 
our crack lions ever knew. And Audrey Burnham was my dad's cousin, who, when she was about 18, uh, was disappeared into a mental home from which she never emerged. Um, to some degree, a lot of Jerusalem is about a, a futile attempt to rescue Audrey Vernon, uh, if that is possible with just writing about it, an attempt to kind of rescue the idea of her. Anyway, I had a phone call from um, the model for Benedict Perrick, and he was saying that uh, his wife, thanked me, his ex-wife thanked me very, very much for the book. Apparently, her uncle used to be in the same band as Audrey Vernon at the end of the 1940s and he still she still had a copy of one of their PR pictures wow which has actually got Audrey who I've never seen I've never seen an image of her but it's got Audrey at the front um in an otherwise all male band with her piano accordion so uh they're going to send it to me so the second edition of Jerusalem yeah, on the dedication page, I want this photo huh. in there. You know, it's that that that's really interesting. That's something that's come. If I hadn't written the novel, then I wouldn't have, uh, you know, found out about this this personal connection. Yeah, um, and I wonder if if for the for the the second edition, that as if it's not already when it's all in one copy. You know, it's it's, it's a it's a big thing, but. I would have thought there could be an enormous number, kind of palace of footnotes, because of the number of people who will read that from Northampton or have family in Northampton or connections to Northampton who will see the connection mm. with... Because it is a, a, a web of... Uh, of a, a clearly, you know, a lot of a lot of it seems to be real. I, d I don't know how much the line between some of the moments in, in the book are based on reality and how much they are taken from other people's histories mixed with that reality. But I would imagine there'll be... So for those who feel that it's a something of a skimpy novella, then volume two with its footnotes... It's, yeah, it should pad it out a little bit, shouldn't it? I mean, You need well, a companion book to it. That, oh, God, someone's going to be doing that. That will happen, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't even have to... That will happen, won't it? We've got to end now, and so I'm, because you mentioned companion book, I will quickly mention. I can't remember if I've put it in this pile here. I haven't. Someone who is a mutual friend of ours, and Bill Ectric has now put together a uh, collection of pieces about their work. Uh, Steve Aylett. Really, uh, there I've is got an, that. It's a little Steve collected volume. Himself. The first uh, uh, of these that we ever did, we talked a great deal about Steve Aylett's Lint and other stuff. Mm. And uh, what is lovely is, uh, and your point is, which is a collection of made-up academic essays huh. about uh, yeah. Lint. Lint. Uh, now there are real essays, and you have a beautiful and nobody description. Nobody will believe it. And it's lovely because his it, description of Steve Ayler is, uh, if we were, I think, if we were a benevolent and kinder uh, group of friends to Steve Ayler, we would lobotomise him. And yeah. if you read more, you'll find out why Alan sees, ultimately, though the action will never take place, the action of lobotomising Steve Ayler may bring a greater level of happiness. Yes, I think that that's For him, not true. for us, yes. though, sadly. Um, Alan, thank you very much. Uh, we'll probably, uh, hopefully, we're going to record the conversation we have about Jerusalem tonight. So, uh, Patreon supporters, we will put up a kind of grainy, uh, uh, a vocally grainy version of that conversation as well. Um, thanks very much, Alan. Hey, my pleasure. 
Thank you very much for listening to our Alan Moore episode, and there should be some Alan Moore bonuses coming up very, very soon as well. Uh, thank you very much to everyone who supports us via both PayPal and Patreon. And remember, uh, Patreon supporters, every week we are giving away a free bag of wonderful, wonderful books. Those of us who supported us on PayPal are, amongst many, Chris Davis, Rosalind Mayhew, Karen Johnson, Caroline Smith, and our Patreon, Josie. Patreon, Tom Adams, Danielle Kushner, Jill Clark, Michael Naylor Hodgkinson, Ellen Alina Kindell, and Tony Middleton. Thank you so much. And this week's winner of a big box of books from the library of Josie Long and Robin Ince is Tom Humberstone. Hello, Tom, and thank you. Yeah, and if you were the winner of our Patreon Box of Books prize, then the best way to get in contact with us is either via our Twitter account, which is at Cosmic Genome, or you can go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, have a look on that page, and you'll be able to contact us there so we can get your address and send the books to you. Also, all episodes, reading lists, and donation links are available from cosmicgenome.com slash shambles. And if you want, you can leave a review on iTunes. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.